Anyway, we're back. Let's do a little political roundup. We just can't help it, even though it's Christmas Day. Uh, something I didn't notice was that before the TV journalist in Iraq, Muntazer al-Zaidi, launched both of his shoes at George Bush's head, uh, Bush had virtually declared victory in Iraq, saying the war, quote, is decidedly on its way to being won, unquote. You know, in the circumstances, I think flinging two shoes at him was completely appropriate. And uh, it's not clear what's going to happen as of the time we're sitting down in front of the microphone, but it does seem that Al Franken may prevail in the Minnesota senatorial race. There's apparently still about 1,500 uh, ballots that are disputed, and they're trying to figure out how to, how to assess what's on them, but that uh, Al Franken's got a lead of something like 48 votes. If that does carry the day, he'll presumably go to the Senate with the nickname Landslide Al. When Lyndon Johnson was elected to the Senate in 1948, he, he went by Landslide Lyndon afterwards because he won by 78 votes. Of course, that one is in quotation marks. He only carried the day due to, uh, due to some mysterious uh, polling results that came in from a notoriously corrupt county near the Mexican border. In fact, later FBI research showed that the final 200 votes all came in alphabetically with the same penmanship and ink, which was different from the, the, the ink and signature of the very last person who said that when he voted, when he was interviewed, he said that he believed he was the last person to cast a vote that day in that precinct. But uh, as, you, as you know, no matter where you're listening from, politics uh, intrudes and the federal authorities decided to let things stand. And that's how LBJ became first a senator, then the most powerful senator in U.S. history, then the vice president, and eventually the president of the U.S. of A., and no, we're not predicting an Al Franken presidency someday, even if landslide Al makes it to Washington. And I, I have to admit, I, I do have to comment on the writing in the Washington Post, which uh, an article describing the, um, the matter of Illinois' Governor Rod Blagojevich, um, which opened by saying, the wide-ranging public corruption probe that led to the arrest of the governor got its first break when a grandmother of six walked into a breakfast meeting with a shakedown artist wearing an FBI wire. Pamela Meyer Davis had been trying to win approval from a state health boarding, from a state planning board for an expansion of Edward Hospital, the facility she runs in a Chicago suburb. But she realized that the only way to prevail was to retain a politically connected construction company and a specific investment house. Instead of succumbing to those demands, she went to the FBI and U.S. Attorney Patrick Fitzgerald. Wouldn't it be nice to have read a story a couple years back about how when a contractor who was trying to actually do some good in Iraq discovered that uh, the only way to prevail was to retain a politically connected construction company and a specific investment house and to have seen some heads roll and that kind of scandal would have been nice. And starting with the new administration uh, on January 20th, uh, I hope there are such investigations. And I'll bet you do too, dear listener. And uh, here's a heartwarming Christmas story. Apparently 93 countries last week signed a treaty to ban cluster bombs, which kill and maim far more civilians than soldiers do. But the world's top users of the weapons, which include Russia, China, Israel, India, Pakistan, and the United States, refused to sign the pact, saying the bombs have legitimate military uses. 
In fact, more than 90% of cluster bomb victims are believed to be civilians, one-third of them children. Well, shame on Russia, China, Israel, India, Pakistan, and the United States. Although I'm tempted to do some of our year in review uh, uh, programming a little bit early, I think we're going to put that off till, um, till next week on New Year's Day, at which point we'll try and take a look back at 2008 with maybe some of our, um, our favorite correspondents. I think we have to take a minute to go back to the Bernard Madoff story, which is dropping jaws all over the world. To some market insiders were long saying that Bernard Madoff's purported investment strategy couldn't possibly generate the steady returns he was delivering to people. Madoff had claimed he was earning higher returns by buying stocks and simultaneously trading options on those stocks, profiting on tiny price differences between the two. But those in the know said that to do so, he would have had to trade far more options contracts than actually change hands daily on the nation's option exchanges. And uh, the Wall Street Journal notes that uh, such discrepancies convinced Harry Markopoulos, a rival money manager, that the results likely weren't real. He wrote the SEC in 1999, warning that, quote, Madoff Securities is the world's largest Ponzi scheme, unquote. The SEC, for its part, has now launched an internal investigation determined to determine why it ignored such warnings. Which reminds me of the old National Lampoon Radio Hour description of the FBI investigation into Watergate, which had then acting director L. Patrick Gray saying, All right, I know I'm in there. If I don't come out with my hands up, I'm coming in there after me. But I'd like to quote uh, Henry Blodgett writing in bloggingstocks.com, as reported in the Week magazine. What may be most disturbing about the Madoff case is that some who invested with him did so because they thought he was a crook. Wrote Blodgett, the smart money knows he had to be cheating because the returns he was generating were impossibly good. It would appear that these investors assumed Madoff was somehow illegally trading on information from his market-making business. They were happy to profit from what they thought was an insider trading scheme, never imagining that Madoff was instead running a good old-fashioned Ponzi scheme. Well, now they know. You know, one of the great things about uh, the annual end-of-the-year issue from The Economist is it's a double issue, and they seem to put a lot of fascinating articles in there that just didn't seem to make it into print earlier. One was a historical look back at a legislative effort in June of 1930, as the Depression was starting in this country, that is universally regarded as having been a really bad idea. That bad idea was the Hawley-Smoot Tariff Act. The bill set up uh, protectionist barriers against imports all across the U.S. economy and then uh, induced a series of like reactions from other nations around the world, inhibited trade, and did a great deal to make the what became a worldwide depression just that much worse. There were some people that saw what it was going to do. Apparently, Thomas Lamont, a partner at J.P. Morgan, went to President Herbert Hoover and said, I almost went down on my knees to beg him to veto the asinine Hawley-Smoot tariff. But Hoover signed it on June 17th. In spite of the fact that he was also given a petition signed by 1,028 American economists asking him not to do so. Its critics also included Franklin Roosevelt, who in his presidential campaign in 1932 dubbed the bill the Grundy Tariff 
after Joseph Grundy, a Republican senator from Pennsylvania and president of the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, who uh, said that anyone who made campaign contributions was entitled to higher tariffs in return. Boy, thankfully, nothing like that could possibly happen today. Might be a good time to mention a classic we've talked about on this show before and quoted from, a book written in something like 1830, still available in bookstores and probably on Amazon. I mean, you can, you can pick up a copy of Extraordinary, Pop- Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. Reference is made to one of the incidents described in that book, that of the South Sea Bubble. But The Economist, being a very pro-business magazine, had <laughs> an article titled The Beauty of Bubbles, which explained how, yeah, in the end, a lot of people go broke, but, you know, a lot of good could come of <laughs> these bubble schemes. The example they give is, is that of Miami Beach and the Florida land boom in the 1920s. And yes, it's true, as, you know, as a result of all this uh, real estate speculation, Miami Beach was constructed out of mangrove swamps. But that uh, hardly seems a justification for real estate speculators. But it is something that seems to repeat itself throughout history. The Economist article referring to that South Sea bubble. And again, we we refer you to Extraordinary Proper Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. Uh, The chapter on the South Sea bubble and tulip mania are worth owning the book on their own merit. But apparently they bought some God-forsaken real estate, some investors did, down near... uh, New Guinea, on islands that were completely unsuited to agriculture due to their abysmal climates. And of course, the money was not generated by uh, the actual enterprise on these islands, but rather on, um, you know, the speculation and stock that was inflated in value. In that particular case, it left behind nothing of tangible value. But I just, out of the whole article, I I love the quote (laughs) that the mania in 1720, reached its peak with the flotation of a firm whose prospectus described itself as, quote, a company for carrying out an undertaking of great advantage, but nobody to know what it is, unquote. Also, a very scary article we need to return to. We don't have time to really do it justice today about the science of shopping. The scariest thing I found about this article was that uh, those who researched such things in large retail centers, um, have basically plotted the positions of telephone handsets as they transmit automatically to cellular networks to decide where shoppers are dwelling. And they want you to dwell because they found that when the dwell time rose by 1%, sales rose 1.3%. This is why popular items are placed halfway along sections so that people have to walk along the aisle looking for them. That boosts your dwell time. For the same reason, everyday items are invariably placed backwards in the back of the store to provide more opportunity to tempt the customer. Well, the more to say on that in the, uh, in the future. I want to compliment some of the writing that's going on out there. Just loved a piece by Blair Anthony Robertson uh, from uh, SACB.com talking about the elements of style, how this, uh, this, this pamphlet, this, this thin book for aspiring writers is 50 years old now. The truth is there's no reason why this should be the last word on how one should write, but um, it's just it's so filled with good advice that it has become a classic. 
But I hope we can get Blair Anthony Robertson to talk about uh, his piece uh, in, in the weeks to come. I'm not sure how Sam McManus is, is managing over at the B. He's writing article after article on uh, medical issues and various things related to training for sports events that, uh, that are pretty good. Another guy we may need to get on is Dr. Michael Wilkes, who's, uh, who's, uh, whose medical column is also quite good. Also want to compliment uh, Tony King for his excellent piece in uh, Midtown Magazine about local bookstores. I think whether you live in, uh, in Sacramento or Serbia, uh, one of the best deals you're going to find in any, whatever neighborhood you're in is going to be, uh, you know, a used bookstore. Although I don't think every, uh, every uh, store in the piece was exclusively a used bookstore. It's still, um, it's still a great uh, listing of one of our best resources. And uh, we were not able to hook up with Seth Shostak of the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute. He was dangled as a guest by a publicist that was trying to shill for the new The Day the Earth Stood Still. But I'm pretty confident we'll have a Mr. Shostak in a future program. And no, we did not see the remake, although I did uh, pull the old VCR off the shelf and watch the original 1951 film last week. Still pretty enjoyable and a movie they should still make a good remake of. There was a very fascinating article in the November first issue of New Scientist about um, about E.T. and phoning home and how we're, we're searching the stars to find signals. Apparently Claudio Maccone, co-chair of the SETI permanent study group based in Paris, France, has suggested that uh, we may want to try and tune into alien cell phone chatter, which isn't quite as silly as it sounds. Apparently here on Earth, the signal used to send information via cell phones has evolved from a single carrier wave to a spread spectrum method of transmission. It's more efficient because chunks of information are essentially carried on multiple low-powered carrier waves, and they're more secure because the waves continually change frequency of the signal, so the signal is harder to intercept. It follows, said the article, that an advanced alien civilization would have made this change too. But, this, but, but SETI is not listening for such signals. An algorithm known as the Fast Fourier Transformation, FFT, is the method of choice for extracting an alien signal from cosmic background or radio noise. However, the technique cannot extract a spread spectrum signal, like on the cell phones we're using right here on Earth. McConey argues that SETI should use an algorithm known as the carhunin Love Transform, KLT, which could find a buried conversation with a signal-to-noise ratio which is much lower than that for FFT. Apparently some people have, uh, have been preaching this uh, using K KLT since the early 1980s, but it's been impractical since you need to have the computing of millions of simultaneous equations and you know even supercomputers today would struggle with this. But apparently uh, these mathematical minds have figured out some ways around this and they're suggesting we may want to program this new uh, KLT a method into um, into computers we have. And sounding off on this for the article was Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute in California who agreed that the KLT may be the way to go but thinks we shouldn't abandon existing efforts yet. It's likely, he said, that for their own conversation they use a spread spectrum method but it's not terribly crazy to assume that to get our attention they might use a ping signal that has a lot of energy in a narrow band, the kind of thing the FFT could find. Anyway, 
Speaking of SETI, the uh, the star Fomalo, which was recently discovered to have planets on it, is now prominently visible in the southern sky uh, uh, on this date. That's assuming you're listening in the northern hemisphere. If you are and you look south, about the only bright star uh, in the south will be Fomalo, a near neighbor which which has planets around it. And once again, too much material, too little time. We're going to have to take another break and then come back and re-air a whimsical piece we did about old-time radio. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.